<clears throat> Good morning, everyone. How are you today? So if you are visiting here today or you're listening to us online, we're grateful that you decided to spend your time with us today. We continue our series on the fruits of the Spirit. And if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, there are some Bibles in front of you below on the seats if you don't have one with you. We begin today in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and we continue. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Today I get to speak to you about kindness and goodness. If you're a Jew, that means you get a double portion. If you're a Gentile, it means you get a second scoop of ice cream. Now it's interesting because this verse, just in and of itself, has some pretty significant theological ramifications. If we have any uh, English scholars in the room, can anybody tell me what part of speech all of those words are? What are their nouns? Right? And if you have your Bible and you look up a couple verses, when Paul is talking about the fruits of the Spirit, he gives us a list of nouns. But earlier than that, he talks about the deeds of the flesh. If you have your Bible open, anybody want to tell me what part of speech those are? Those are all verbs. Now, Paul's a really smart guy, and he compares nouns to verbs. Why do you think he does that? The reason is, is because it matters who you are, not what you do. Now, that's really, really important because that's part of the biblical worldview. One day, all of us are going to stand before God. And when you stand before God, either it's going to be based on who you are, or it's going to be based on what you've done. That's why the Bible talks about being in Christ. It becomes very important that when I stand before God, that he doesn't see me. I'm not a good guy. I want him to see his son, Jesus Christ. Because if I don't stand there covered in Christ, I stand there in my own presence. And remember, God is the judge of all the universe. And when you stand before the judge, what do you stand before a judge for? Generally because you did something bad, right? If you get a speeding ticket, he's not gonna sit back and, and go over all the nice things that you did, all the times that you let somebody in or any of that. He's only going to deal with all the things that you've done wrong. So you wanna be very careful when you stand before God and you wanna have the right understanding. And it's important to basically get this so that you understand what I'm about to tell you today. So the first thing that I, I'm going to talk about is kindness. And let's look at the definition of kindness. Kindness is the quality of being friendly, generous, or considerate. Now sometimes when we're looking and trying to understand a word, one of the best ways to understand the true meaning of a word is not to look at its meaning, but to look at its opposite. So we're gonna look at a biblical story here about the exact opposite of kindness. And if you're not kind, you're mean. And the person that we're gonna look at is the story in Genesis, Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel. And in that story, we find out about these two men. There's Cain and there's Abel. Cain is a tiller of the ground, which means he's a farmer. Abel is a keeper of flocks. I don't know if you can be a sheep rancher, but I always kind of imagine that's what Abel was. He tended sheep. Cain goes before God and he offers fruit. Abel goes before God and he offers a lamb from his flock. 
The Lord regards Abel's offering, but he doesn't like Cain's. Cain becomes angry, and what does he do? He kills his brother, and then we get perhaps one of the most interesting phrases in the Bible. God and Cain begin to have this exchange, and Cain, uh, the Lord asks Cain, he says, where's your brother Abel? Cain's response is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And in that response, or in that question from Cain, do you notice God doesn't respond? Do you think it's because God doesn't know the answer to that? No, that question is open-ended for a reason. It's because the Bible wants you to answer that. The question is, are you your brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. If you really want to understand kindness, you have to understand being your brother's keeper. I think from the very beginning, that's what God intended for all of us, that we would be our brother's keeper, that we wouldn't look out for our own interests, but that we would look out for the interests of others. Now, I understand it's kind of hard to be kind. People are a pain. I work in downtown Denver. I have to commute I-70 every day. It's a madhouse. I try not to get killed every day, and a good day is if only two people try to kill me. We work with people who are frustrating. We ourselves are frustrating. Anytime you deal with humans, it becomes difficult. Matter of fact, I like to, to think about the story. Do you know the difference between an idiot and a maniac? An idiot's the guy in front of you. The maniac's the guy behind you. Think about that for a while when you're driving, right? It's always that guy in the back who's trying to run you over and chase you off the road. But we have to learn to deal with people. We have to learn to get along with one another. We have to learn to become kind to one another. There's a quote that I like to think about sometimes, and it says, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. You have to give your brother the benefit of the doubt. When somebody's speeding along or cutting in and out of traffic, rather than just say, who's that idiot? Sometimes it may be because he has a good reason. And we have to give one another the benefit of the doubt in everything. My wife always likes to tell the grandkids, always be kind. It's a great lifestyle to live. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know you could grieve the Holy Spirit of God? You can make the Holy Spirit sorry you can make him feel bad. And why? He says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That grieves the Holy Spirit. When we don't get along with one another, he gets upset. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Notice in kindness that it's, it's critically tied to forgiveness. You need to be able to forgive people. If the only time that you're kind to someone is when someone's kind to you, you're not leave, leading a godly life. That's not how God treats us, and that's not how God wants us to treat one another. In order to be kind, you have to do a number of things. One, you have to be intentional. That means you have to think about it a little bit. You can't just react and respond. Now, it's nice when you open the door for somebody who's carrying a large object. That's being kind. But really what you need to do is think about it. That means before you come to church, before you go to life group, sit back and think, how can I be intentionally kind to this person? Maybe it's your next door neighbor. Maybe it's somebody at work. But you have to think about it. It's not an immediate response. 
You have to be generous. It's going to cost you to be kind. A lot of times we think that we're pretty kind just because we respond to the immediate moment. You have to plan this stuff out to truly be kind like God. Be thoughtful. And when you hear that word, what do you think of? Thoughtful. It means be full of thoughts. Sit back, meditate. Sometimes when you're driving in your car, think of ways that you could be kind to other people. Be hospitable. When was the last time you had somebody over for dinner? People respond to people who are kind. Be forgiving. Being kind will always cost you time, money, convenience, and grief. Remember when Mark Arnett was preaching a couple weeks ago, he talked about mishpat, the whole idea of justice that you have to look out for your, other, for your brother's welfare? It gets back to the whole story of Cain and Abel. You are your brother's keeper, and the way that you can engage your brother and be his keeper is to be kindness, or to be kind. Let's look at our second fruit, goodness. Goodness, again, is a noun. The definition is the quality of being morally good or virtuous. Now, if you're any kind of Bible scholar, this should cause you a little bit of problem, right? And the reason is, is because how did we get into this problem we're in with our fallen state? It's because we all were trying to figure out good and evil. And it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, we read the account. It says, And the Lord God commanded him, You may eat freely from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, an interesting thing, and most people don't think about this, what did Adam and Eve do f- about good and evil before they ate, before they ate of the fruit? Where did they get their knowledge of that? How did they find out good from evil? Anybody want to guess? How's that? They didn't know. I think what they did is they got it from God. God was the source of all good and evil. And why can he be the source of it and not us? You don't know everything. You're not omniscient. You don't know why that person did something to you. They may have had a good reason for doing it, or maybe something was going on inside of their mind. Whatever the case is, all of us fall short when it comes to understanding good and evil. We have certain shortcomings. I'm reminded of a story a number of years ago. We have some friends of the family. They have a son named John. John's a great kid. He's always fun because he likes to kind of probe my Christianity and he will ask me questions and see exactly where I'm at. And I try to give to John as good as I get. Anyway, we were at dinner one time at uh, Red Lobster and John was giving me some grief. And it occurred to me and I asked, I looked at him and I said, John, how do you determine good from evil? And he stopped and he thought about it for a second. And he said, well, I determined that for myself. And I said, oh, so you're your own God. And boy, he was stunned like a Klingon who just got hit by a phaser. He said, I never looked at it that way, right? That's how we kind of, we want to view things. It's like, I want to determine for myself what's good and and what's evil. When we went through the blueprint session or series, over and over again, it was commended to us, don't pick what is good and evil based on what the culture tells you, based on how you feel, based on your friends. Learn to determine good and evil from the source. Learn to determine that 
from God. Matter of fact, it's interesting if you look at Luke chapter 18, in verse 18 and 19, it's the story of the rich and young ruler, and there's an interesting verse there. The ruler comes up to him and says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And look what Jesus' response is. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We don't have that ability to know that inside of us. And Jesus tells us that. He says, hey, there's only one person who really knows good, what's good, and that's God. And it's because he knows everything. In John 3, verse 1, or chapter 1, excuse me, 3 John, chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Now, this is one of those verses that prove divine inspiration. You probably don't notice it right away, but let me explain it to you. It says, Beloved, don't imitate what's evil, but what is good. Now, most of us, when we read this, we would finish this sentence, and the one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil is not of God. But that's not what it says, does it? It says, the one who does evil has not seen God. Well, that's curious, but it's very interesting because Paul is extremely consistent in the biblical worldview about what he means by that verse. Let me explain. I want you to consider somebody who had a chance to see God. His name was Moses. Moses was one of the greatest characters in all of Scripture. He had an opportunity to see God face to face. The first time he comes in contact with God, he encounters a burning bush. Did he see God? No, but he saw a representation of God that was impressive. This bush that's burning and it's not consumed. This God then takes Moses on an incredible journey. He instructs him and, and tells him, I'm going to walk with you and you're going to overthrow the greatest power of the day. You're going to overthrow the Egyptians and all of their army. When the Egyptians marched, the world trembled. And yet one single man, all on his own, with a staff and his brother beside him, overthrew at that time the greatest power on earth. And in overthrowing that power, God went before them as a pillar of smoke and as a pillar of fire. When you think about that in your mind's eye, what do you see? Do you see this little puff of smoke? Do you see, how big of a pillar of smoke do you think this was? How big of a pillar of fire went before the Israelites? I think this thing was probably as, at least as, as wide as this building and probably 100 feet tall. You had a massive army and this tower of flame is stopping all of the Egyptian army. They won't even try to pass it. They had to be in fear of it. This was incredibly impressive. And that's who God saw, but, or I'm sorry, that's who Moses saw, but it wasn't really God. It was something that God used to represent himself. Then when they're at the Red Sea, Moses lifts up his hands and he makes a comment. You know what he said? He said, behold the salvation of the Lord and the waters parted. Now, do you know what that word really translates in the Hebrew when he does that? When he says, behold the salvation of the Lord? He says, behold the Yeshua of the Lord. You know who Yeshua is? We call him Jesus. When he pronounced the name of Jesus, the waters parted. That was the power of God. But still, Moses hadn't seen God. 
And I, then finally, when he gets the Ten Commandments for the very first time, God tells him to come up on the mountain, and God says, be careful, because I'm going to appear on that mountain. And Moses probably was thinking, great, I get to see God. But God appeared as fire and burned the top of the mountain. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Mount Sinai. We live in Colorado. Can you imagine if every day when you went by Long's Peak, you could see 100 feet down, the whole top of that mountain scorched? That's what Israel saw after God got done with his presence there. And what I want you to see is that something began to happen in Moses. He was so enamored with this God of Israel who basically revealed himself that I think he begins to set God up. And if you follow along in Exodus 33, I'm not going to read this exactly as the scriptures uh, show it verse by verse. I'm going to read it to you as an exchange between two people, between this conversation between Moses and God. And Moses comes before God and he says, now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. God says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Moses is thinking, great. He goes a little bit farther. He says, if your presence does not, go with, does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, it is not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. Moses basically is saying, Can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? In other words, God, do you like me? Am I your friend? God says, I will do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses probably was thinking, great, I got him right where I want him. What's Moses' next response? He says, I pray, show me your glory. Now, why do you think he did that? Moses had seen this God revealed to him in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of smoke, in a presence on the mountain that made everybody tremble. But Moses still hadn't seen him face to face. And more than anything, that's what he wanted. God says to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up here in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. What do you think Moses was thinking? I think this was better than Christmas night for a little kid. I don't think he slept that whole night. Matter of fact, the scripture says he got up early that morning. He didn't wait till 10 o'clock to go up on the morning. I I think at crack of dawn, he was up there. He was excited because of all things, what Moses wanted more than anything else was to see the face of God. 
He wanted to see the glory of God. Now it's God's turn. He appears to Moses and he says, the Lord, that's the Y-H-W-H, the great I am, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generations. When you see this in your mind's eye, what do you see? Do you see this being who suddenly shows up in all of his splendor and all of his glory in some kind of radiant light? What is it that made God so glorious? He doesn't say, I'm the one who can create out of nothing. I create from tohu, how is it, tohu, bohu? In the Hebrew, right? I, come, I create out of absolute nothingness. I have the power to do anything. No. He says, my glory is based on what? What is it that makes God shine? What is it that makes God so glorious nobody can look on him? He says, this is my glory, right? He says, I'm abounding in loving kindness. Now that's fascinating. He doesn't say, I'm just kind. He doesn't say, I possess kindness. He says, I possess loving kindness, which exceeds all the kindness that any of us understand. Not only that, he says, I am abounding in loving kindness, which means I have more of this than you can ever imagine. That is the glory of God. He says, and I keep, he says he keeps this loving kindness for thousands. He doesn't keep this to himself. He wants to give this out to everyone. This, was, this is what makes God so special. Moses now bowing in worship. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your possession. Moses finally said, I've seen you and I'm willing to go anywhere you want to go. The end of the story basically concludes, Moses is up there on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And when Moses is done, his face begins to shine. There is a transformation that began to happen with Moses. And it's important for us to understand this if you want to ultimately become good and you want to ultimately become kind. You don't do that on your own, at least according to the way the Bible describes it. You will be transformed by being in contact with the one true God. Matter of fact, there's a saying that you become like what you admire or even better yet, what you worship. When I was a little kid, I loved basketball. Ate, slept, drank basketball. Every time we went out for recess, I was playing basketball. After school, I was playing basketball. After dinner, I was playing basketball. I loved basketball. My hero was this guy named Lou. Lou was arguably one of the best basketball players ever. Three times he won the NCAA championship with the UCLA Bruins. He ultimately became the NBA all-time scoring leader. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Lou Alcindor, who changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Some guys think that LeBron James is the best basketball player ever. Not even close. You know what LeBron James scoring since he entered the NBA is? Something like 32,000 points. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 
His is 49,000 points. He's only 60% of the way there. But one thing we all understand, you do become like what you admire or what you worship. If you worship money, you will become greedy. If you worship sex, you'll become depraved. If you worship food, you'll become Italian. (laughs) Just kidding. But it's very important, and you're going to see in the Bible that that whole idea of how you become something is told to us. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us, if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good, notice the good, to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus' commandment to us is, I want you to be like your Father in heaven, our response should be, but how? I am a sinner. I think what the Bible begins to tell us is that there's a way for you ultimately to develop these characteristics in you. Not by reading self-help books, not by going to seminars, not by thinking about it a lot. What it, well, maybe by thinking about it a lot. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. Paul tells us, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Did you realize this? You can get a new brain? You can get a new mind. If you go before God, that's what he tells you that he will do to you. Just like he did to Moses, he began to change who Moses is. He can change who we are by spending time with him. When you see God, do you see the kindness of God? Moses, God described himself as abounding in loving kindness. I think what God was saying, I'm more kind than anybody else who has ever existed or ever will exist. My kindness knows no bounds. Matter of fact, you probably don't realize this, but God's kindness is in your past, in your present, and in your future. In Ephesians chapter one, verse five, It says, he predestined you. You know what that means? Before the foundation of the world, before there was time, space, gravity, any particles, he was thinking about you and how he could be kind to you. That is amazing. It says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us, In the beloved, he's kind to you now. 
In Titus 3, verse 4 and 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, stuff that we do, remember? <clears throat> which we have done in, in, for he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did, have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the watching of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. He's also going to be kind in the future to you. This is one of the most amazing verses. So in the ages to come, in other words, in the future, when there is no more earth, he's still gonna be kind to you. It says, in the ages to come, he might show his surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, since we're talking about kindness and goodness, we have to talk about goodness and God's goodness. Now, there's a little bit of a paradox according to the scripture in terms of God's goodness. Because just like I told you earlier, we have a problem. And what's our problem? We have a hard time telling good from evil. Sometimes we can figure it out, but a lot of times we don't. That's why we have political parties. That's why we have strife. That's why we have contention. That's why we don't get along with one another. Sometimes most of us think that we're pursuing good when we're not. So how do you see God's goodness? If we have a problem with good and evil, how can you ever know that God's good, right? The way that you can tell is if God is genuinely good, he probably would have done something that would be more good, if you will, than anything anybody has ever done in the history of the world. If you're gonna make that claim that you're good and you are the source of all goodness, you surely should have to meet that criteria. You should also have to be good, not just to one person, not just to somebody that you know, but you should be good to all people at all time, throughout history. And your act of goodness should be, have a greater impact than any other act ever recorded. Matter of fact, it's fun when you kind of read the scriptures and you keep that in mind, Paul kind of addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He talks about this paradox. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? In other words, he's asking, hey, where's the really smart people? Do you consider yourself a pretty smart person? <laughs> no. If you do, you should be able to figure this out. But, but it goes on and he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, he's saying when he decided to crucify his son for your salvation, he was doing something that was incredibly good and nobody got it. None of us understood it. Why? Because we have a hard time understanding good from evil. We have a hard time understanding and yet wrapped up in the greatest act of goodness in the history of the world was something that seemed so bizarre to the entire world. How could the crucifying, how could the killing of somebody who was accused of a crime result ultimately in the salvation of all mankind? 
The Jews looked at that and couldn't believe it. They couldn't accept it. All of the Romans, the Gentiles, they thought that's foolish. This guy was a criminal. And yet God reconciled the entire world by doing the greatest act of good through his son. Matter of fact, it even says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, chapter 8, Paul talks and he says, but we speak of God's wisdom in a mystery. Notice he refers to it as something that, difficult to understand, the hidden wisdom of God, predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, some of the scholars believe the rulers of the age meant the rulers, the governors, the kings of the world. Some scholars believe it even goes farther into the very powers of darkness, the powers behind some of these thrones, that even the powers of darkness never understood that God was going to do something incredibly miraculous through the death of his son. In fact, if they had known that, they never would have done it. And he, Paul continues on with one of the most incredible verses. Things which eye has not seen nor ear heard and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. If God predestined before the foundation of the world the death of his son to result in your salvation, can you imagine what the kind intention of his will is for you for all eternity? It's going to be amazing. Now, I want you to put yourself in God's place. When he looks down, what do you think he sees? Easy. He sees immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Galatians chapter 5 calls those the deeds of the flesh. That's what we do. But we said the Christian worldview is it's more important who you are. And if that's true, then what you do, if that's true, what is the character of God? Well, that's easy. Galatians 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All the fruits of the Spirit are qualities of God. And if who you are ultimately dictates what you do, and those are the characteristics of God, what did God do? In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the fullness of all the kindness, of all the goodness that exists in God. He is the total embodiment of that. And that one act upon the cross was the greatest act of kindness and goodness we could ever imagine. It results in the salvation of all who come to understand it. Why did God do that? It's because he thinks very highly of you, more than you will ever understand. And he desires you to be with him for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the fruits of your spirit, we thank you for the things that you reveal. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. Help us to see your glory. Help that glory when we spend time with you to transform us from being sinful people to being people that you are proud of.
that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can change our lives. You can make us the people you always created us to be. Thank you so much for the gift of your son, for his salvation, for his death on the cross, that we might all live with you for all eternity. Amen. Amen.